You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to jump back into the book of Ephesians today. If you're not familiar with what we normally do at our church, we do something called expository preaching, which, which means most generally we just go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And so um, during Advent, during the Christmas season, we took some time to go through some different Psalms, but today we're going back into Ephesians. We stopped at the halfway point. Ephesians has six chapters. We, we uh, went through the first three, and um, over the next several months, we'll go through the second three chapters. And so if you have a Bible, you can uh, follow along with me or you can follow along on the screen, but I'll be covering uh, what Etic read in uh, chapter four of Ephesians, and we'll cover verses one through 10. Um, in this volume or this chapter, we've titled it, We Are Together. And you'll see a, a practice, if you've been following along particularly, you'll see a, a shift in Paul's language from uh, very theological in nature in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to very practical in nature in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Um, and, and this shift actually is a helpful theme because Paul does first half of his letter telling us what we ought to believe, and then practically and by way of application, that leads us into then what ought we to do, um, how we ought to walk, as he puts it in verse 1. Now, um, my wife and I recently talked about uh, Christmas um, because of the Christmas season. My wife is like, um, she's, her spirit's kind of like Buddy the Elf, and mine's kind of like the Grinch, like before, before he's redeemed, right? Um, and I, I tend to like war against the commercialism of Christmas and things like that. And, um, and we were talking about why at Christmas time there's, there's heightened depression and anxiety and things like that. And I was on my typical Grinch kind of rant one day, and, and I said, well, we've, we, we built up an expectation that's so high that when we can't meet it, when we fail to hit that expectation, then we are brought to a very low low. Um, and, and it's like we, we see on TV, Hallmark's the worst, ultimately Hallmark's to blame for all the problems of society, um, right? Uh, but, <laughs> but the Hallmark movies, hear me out, all right? The Hallmark movies kind of present this like this utopia of sorts. And then, and then when you, let's just be real, when you go hang out with your cousins, it's not quite a Hallmark movie, right? So, so you find yourself let down when it doesn't live up to the expectation. Another example would be like a wedding. Um, I, I don't get nervous for a whole lot of things, but I am a wreck when it comes to a wedding because um, some sweet girl has dreamed of this since she was you know, three years old playing with Barbie dolls and she's got her wedding all planned out. And then they put a mic on my head and they say, don't screw it up, right? And there's just so much pressure of like what the expectation is and you don't want to you don't want to fall short of that. We do the same thing with church. We 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 kind of have in our minds this romanticized vision of what the people of God ought to be, um, and and we probably even base that in scripture. We all love one another, care for one another, be humble, be gentle, be patient, etc., etc., etc. But we look at it and we dream about it in its perfection rather than its reality. And then when we step into a real church with real people, with real sinners, we begin to realize very quickly that people suck that people are messed up and that people will hurt our feelings. And listen, I'll be the first to tell you, New Heights Church is my favorite church, uh, but we will let you down and we will fail you and we will hurt your feelings. And so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that as, as a Christian 
Um, well, sometimes we deal with it. Well, let's kick rocks and move on somewhere else until we find the perfect church and we just spend our whole life kind of searching and never actually finding what it is we're looking for. But I think Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a good picture of what we ought to be in the church, rooted in the gospel. It brings us into unity because we realize the gospel is what unites us. It unites imperfect people in a perfect Savior. And in chapter 4, I want to read uh, the first 10 verses all together just so you get a whole picture of it. And I want to read it in English this time because I can't read it in Ukrainian. Um, But in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Here's a thesis statement for today's sermon. The gospel brings us grace for unity in all of life. Um, And those will be my three points breaking that sentence down. The gospel brings us grace, gives gifts to us, Paul describes it, for unity in the church, but overflowing into all areas of our lives. And because Paul gives us application in verses 1 through 3, and he gives us um, a unifying creed or confession in verses 4 through 6, but the justification and foundation of it all is found in verses 7 through 10, and and what is a reminder of the gospel. I'm actually going to work through this text backwards. And so for you OCD people like me, I apologize in advance. Just bear with me like the text says and, and go backwards through this text with me. But first I want to look at the gospel bringing grace to us. Paul makes an argument for unity, but he roots it in its cause being in the gospel. So the proof of it is in verses 8 through 10 specifically. In verse 8 he says, when he ascended he, had, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this is a quote. If you look in your Bible they'll have quotations around it, maybe even a footnote that you can cross-reference. And he is quoting from Psalm 68. And then he gives a parenthetical commentary on that psalm, which says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And the reason that Paul is quoting Psalm 68 is because Psalm 68 talks about the victory of Jesus. That means that we find our unity in the victory of Jesus, not in the victory of us, Not in the victory of our church, not in the victory of our brand being more on point or cooler than the church down the street, but we find our victory in an empty cross and an empty tomb. And in Psalm 68, 18 is the verse that Paul's quoting. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. That is good news for you today, sinful person that God chooses to dwell among the rebellious. That's, that's like my motto for my life when I'm living at my home with my children. I'm like, I'm just sitting here dwelling among the rebellious. And it's a picture of a good heavenly father who has a lot of rebellious children. 
that God doesn't dwell among perfect people. He dwells among rebellious people that he is turning into the perfection to mirror his good son, Jesus. And Paul tells us that Psalm 68 is all about Jesus. And he gives commentary on it. And he uses this psalm. It would have been a common worship song, just like when we sing songs at church, you're familiar with them a lot of times. And so they would have known this song that would have been sung in their churches. And he's using the lyrics of that psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach them something about Jesus, to teach about his ascension, but also to infer the fact of his descension. He descended, Paul says, into the lower regions of the earth. Now, there's a few possible meanings for this, and I don't want to get too nerdy and get too in the weeds on this, but we had a great elder discussion this week talking about the possible interpretations of this passage. But there's a few possible meanings of what Paul is referring to when he says that Jesus descended to the lower regions. What are, what are the lower regions? For some of y'all, you're like, that's Lincoln County. You know, I'm not sure what we're talking about here, right? So let's unpack that. Um, one, one thing that he could mean, and probably the primary thing that he means, is the incarnation. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. What Paul is describing in Philippians 2 is what we call the incarnation. It means the putting on of flesh. God became a man to save men. It's what we just celebrated at Christmas time. And so when Paul says that Jesus came to the lower regions of the earth, it means that he didn't come to the capital of the known world at that time. He didn't show up in Rome to present himself as king. He came through a small town called Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, to be raised in a podunk redneck place and reveal himself as the son of God. Uh, so that's the incarnation, God, heavenly God, coming to earth to save men. Another thing he could mean is the burial itself. It's a very physical interpretation of the lower regions of the earth, just meaning underground. Um, Jesus even taught this about himself. In Matthew 12, he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so with the Son of Man, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus even predicted that he would die and be placed underground in a tomb to then raise from the dead. Uh, a third thing he can mean is, uh, is the lower regions, meaning Sheol. This is a, an Old Testament Hebrew word, Sheol, meaning the place of the dead. Hades in Greek, uh, translated hell into English. And most of us, when we hear hell, we think of the eternal lake of fire, but Hades wasn't that place. Sheol wasn't that place. It was just a place of the dead. And there was a blissful place of the dead, and there was a tormentful side of that Sheol as well. Now, we know that when Jesus died, and he's in the grave, that his spirit, Spirit, uh, went to the place of the dead, went to the grave, went to Sheol, and he went there to proclaim victory. First Peter gives us insight to this. In 1 Peter 3, 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And this is why the psalm says that he leads a host of captives. When Jesus dies, he goes to Sheol, Hades, and he finds the Old Testament saints who had hoped in the coming Messiah, and he leads them out of the place of death into the place of life um, and leads them, those captives, to be set free. Even the Apostles' Creed, which we will sing at the end of our service today, uh, states that he descended into hell. Now, why do I say all this? Paul could mean one of these things. He could mean two. He could mean three. 
Um, Whatever view you may take, here's the point, is that Jesus came to us. And not only to us, but went further than we could ever imagine to ensure that we would never be lost. That we would be with him and at his side for eternity. And if you're here this morning and you think you're going through hell right now, and listen, you might be. Your circumstances, your trials, the stuff you're dealing with might be more than you can handle. But the hope of the gospel isn't that you can be strong, you can do it, you can make it. No, the hope of the gospel is Jesus is much stronger than you. Jesus is perfect where you are imperfect. And Jesus has literally gone to hell and back for you, son or daughter of God. That's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus descended to the lowest of lows so that he could go to the highest of highs and take you there with him. Jesus has come for you and he is calling you to himself and sanctifying his church. And so after his descension, he has a glorious and victorious ascension. He returns to the right hand of the father. Psalm 68 that that Paul's basing his whole argument out of is a victory song. There were lots of occasions for songs that these psalms were written. There were sad songs and happy songs and uh, meditative thinking songs, all kinds of different occasions. Psalm 68 is a victory song, and it was primarily used by the Jewish people to sing after a victory in battle. After they would have a military battle, they would come home singing this song. When I travel places, um, my wife, who likes the thermostat to be set on 73, Um, also likes to kind of dwell in hoodies in our home. She's just cold all the time. And so when I travel, one of the things I do is I always bring her a hoodie. Usually I pay way too much for it in an airport, Um, but I bring her a hoodie from where I go. So she's got like New York, Detroit. She's got all these places um, that I'll bring her. And um, even when I travel, my kids will sometimes like want a souvenir or something brought back from where I'm like, Dad, did you bring us anything? And I'm like, I just... I just went to Boone County today. It's not a big deal. You know, you don't, you don't get a souvenir from Boone County. Um, but, you know, they, they want me to bring something home with me. And uh, Psalm 68 is a song of a returning king. And, and the custom in the ancient Near East was when a king and a military would return home from battle, they would bring gifts with them. They would bring the spoils of war. They would have the enemy had been defeated and they would bring their jewelry and their, their belongings and they would bring them and bless their people with them. And this is what Paul's taking that uh, battle analogy and he's applying it to the church. And he's saying Jesus has won the war against sin and death and the grave and hell. And he is bringing back the spoils of that war, gifts that he's giving. Verse 8 says, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's us who were captive to sin, who are set free by Jesus. And he gave gifts to men. You see, the gospel brings us grace for unity in all of life. This grace is delivered to us as a result of what Jesus did in his victory. And grace is the spoils of the war that Jesus won. Verse 7, it says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so this is what Jesus brings back from hell for his children. He says he's given gifts to his church so that we can serve one another. You see, the grace that's mentioned in verse 7, grace was given. Grace, most often in the Bible, is described as saving grace. Most of the time when you see the word grace, that's what's being described. That our salvation, our eternal life, is given to us freely. It's nothing we can do to earn it. So it's saving grace. But here, Paul's not talking about saving grace. He's talking about serving grace, sanctifying grace, gifts, spiritual gifts that are given to us uh, that we can use to help one another, to comfort one another, to serve one another. 
You see, many of us gladly accept saving grace, but we neglect our call to serving grace within Jesus' church. And, and I'll just, uh, I would just make the argument that you can't have one without the other. Once your eyes are opened by the, the glories of the Holy Spirit to see the wonderful, completely free, saving grace of God, then you have, you're just compelled by the love of God to step into the serving grace that he has placed in front of you, the opportunity to be in his church and to serve in his name. And so that brings unity, which is the second point. So the gospel brings us this grace for the purpose of unity in all of life. Listen, I, I, I understand we live in a polarizing world, don't we? We live in a world full of war. We live in a world full of rivalries and opinions and political polarization. And you don't have to go really any further than Facebook than to see that. It's like every time I get on there, WSAZ, they're clickbaiting us in and we're all arguing in the comments, right? I'm like, which, which one of my church members we're going to see arguing on WSAZ's comment war, right? I'm like, go get them. <laughs> Make me proud. Um, <laughs> but, but in this culture, that, I mean, our culture does everything to divide us. Everything to, to push us to some extreme or one end or the other. And, and, and it's not just political, it's, it's everything. Like, we'll, we'll argue about a meme that we see on the internet, right? And what Paul does is he gives us something greater than what divides us. And by the way, the divisions aren't all bad. It's okay to be divided on some things. Some of y'all are Chipotle people, right? It's all right. You're just wrong. And Qdoba is supreme. I, I keep preaching that, right? But that's not the gospel, right? It's not one Tex-Mex restaurant. There's a lot of ones in here, but, but there's multiple Tex-Mex options for us. But in verses 4 through 6, what we have is a, a, an early creed or confession. This was most likely written by the apostles, delivered to the church, and, and it was most likely memorized by the early church. Uh, we know this from some, some uh, extra-biblical writing that, that references this, and, and also the, it's, it's poetry and it's form in Greek. And so this would actually be really good for you to take a couple of weeks or, or a month and try to memorize this um, like, the, like the saints of the first century did. But we have this confession in verses 4 through 6 that says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the case that Paul is making is that in all of your disagreements, church, in all of, of what may be different about us and what may divide us, we can find unity in these seven ones. I love hearing it read in Ukrainian. Um, in Ukrainian, the word one is Odin. And, and as Edik reads it, I heard Odin. I, I miss you know, most of the words as he's reading, but I hear Odin, 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 one, one, one. And you hear, uh, hear <clears throat> these seven commonalities. Three of them are just the three persons of the Trinity. You see one spirit in verse 4. This is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, Paul wrote about him in chapter 1 and how he convicts us of sin and regenerates us and brings us to life and seals us until the day of redemption and empowers us to carry out our mission as the church. The second person of the Trinity is mentioned in one Lord. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on a cross and rose from the dead to save us from our sins. The first person of the Trinity is mentioned as, in verse 6, one God and Father of all. And he describes him as being over all and through all and in all, which means that this unifying statement is much greater than the tertiary things that would divide us and cause conflict among us. 
These seven commonalities were, were the glue that were supposed to hold the church together. Verse 4 says that they were one body. He's referring to the church universal, many local churches, but uh, Paul called Christ the head of the church and the people of the church the body of Christ. Grant is, is new boot goofing today. Um, he's got a boot on his foot, and it's not like a cowboy boot. It's like the bag kind of boot. But, but he, he injured his foot demoing for his church. You want to talk about serving your church well, just break your foot in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> right? He signed a waiver. All right? So we're safe. He can't sue us. Um, but <laughs> but uh, listen, his head ain't right because his foot ain't right. Right? You just talk to him and you'll learn that real quick. But like when your foot's broken, like the rest of your body's miserable because of it. It's not like the, everything else just goes on as normal. It affects everything about him. And the same is true of the body of Christ, that when, when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. And when one member rejoices, the whole body rejoices. And that, therein we find our unity that Paul's preaching about. And we also share one hope, he says. The hope that we share is the gospel. I had a kid ask me one time why I preached about the same thing every Sunday. I'm like, it's because that is what my whole life is about. This one hope, this gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is what I will always preach about. It's the most important thing. And he says we have one faith. This most likely refers to a set of beliefs, a doctrine. We share one set of beliefs. And he also says one baptism. We're immersed spiritually in Christ and also physically in the sacrament of baptism where we dunk you underwater to publicly profess that you uh, serve Jesus and are part of his church. It's a beautiful description of what we're supposed to be together as we try to look more and more like Jesus. Pastor Tony Merida, in his commentary, wrote this about this text. He says, the more we look like Jesus individually, the more we live like Christ relationally. You know, it's really easy for us to focus on the relational side and forget about the individual side. Jesus even preached about this, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He said, make sure you get that two by four out of your own eye before you go try to get a speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. And, 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 he, and he did that to demonstrate that it is our natural proclivity to worry about other people and their relationship to us or the grudge we have against them or the feelings that they hurt in our soul or whatever before we worry about if we're looking like Jesus in the way that we're walking first. And, and so it is imperative that we walk like Jesus and look like Jesus and act like Jesus. And the more that we do that, the more that we will live like him relationally in the church. And notice that all seven of these ones are spiritual. There's seven spiritual commonalities. None of them are physical. None of them are, are based on your background. None of them are ethnic. None of them are economic. None of them are political. None of them are based on your circumstances. None of them are prerequisites. And what this does, it gives us seven unifying things that we as sinners come to be redeemed. And that means that anyone can get in on this. No one is excluded from this. No one is too lowly that God won't save them. And this unity then overflows to all areas of our lives because if anyone can get in on this, then we've got to get it out there. You know, there's a couple of different extremes a church family could go to. If you imagine the church like a cup and you pour water in that cup, the cup could, could just contain, you know, like any sensible person, unless you're, you know, unless you're a 
psychopathic toddler that just likes to make messes, right? You pour water in a cup until it's nearly full. You don't get that, whatever that scientific term is, where it like bubbles at the top. You don't go all that. You just pour it till it's almost near the top and stop. A lot of churches are like this. There's no overflow. And these churches turn into like country clubs. New Heights would be maybe more like a honky-tonk, but whatever analogy you want to use, uh, we would turn into that. And we would have a building that suits us, and we would have programs that suit us, and we would have everything that we need, and every Bible study we want, and every small group that we want to be a part of, and everything that we need to be comfortable while we just wait for heaven to come. And the cup never overflows. On the flip side, you have a, you have a cup that never holds any water. You have a cup with holes poked in it that's slung around everywhere, and it just goes everywhere. And some of these churches do really good work, but they just become humanitarian centers. We're going to help everyone. We're going to overextend ourselves. And there's no deep-rooted discipleship. There's no grief. There's no comfort. There's no lament. There's, there's no practical care of people within the cup. It's just all going willy-nilly everywhere. And I think the biblical picture of, of the church is that we are, we are contained in ourselves. That's why I think membership's important, that we care for one another. We practically do the things that we need to do to make disciples. We carry out the mission, but it overflows most certainly. We just keep, God keeps pouring, it keeps overflowing, and growth happens. And, and by God's grace, we see more and more people come into the benefits of God's kingdom. And that's where the third point comes in. The gospel brings us grace for unity in all of life. Not just in our church corner of life. Not just in the religious part of our week. You see, it happens and uh, it overflows into the school we're at or the, the job that we work or our circles of friends. And this is what the rest of Ephesians is about. So if this makes you uncomfortable, good. Because that was Paul's intention Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are full of theology that, that, that people have sat around for thousands of years debating what Paul meant by big subjects like predestination. What did that mean? And, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 are Paul say, basically Paul saying, quit debating that and get to it. Get out there and walk it out. Verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word therefore alludes back to these first three chapters, but then he tells us to walk. He even calls himself a prisoner, um, thereby showing that he doesn't really have a choice but to live accordingly. He tells us to walk because this word walk means that we are to carry out what we believe. You see, the word orthodoxy means, means right belief. The word orthopraxy means right action or right practice. And so if we have right orthodoxy, and I, I, hope, we, I hope we do, I hope you believe the right things, if you believe what Paul says in chapters 1, 2, and 3, then he's saying, then you also have to do the right things. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 leads us to orthopraxy. And we got to make sure the order is right. He tells us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Notice that our calling isn't worthy of our walk. You weren't called by God because you were just attractive, because you had it all together. God's like building this church, and it's like dodgeball, and he's trying to pick the best players. He's like, I want that guy in my church. Right? That's not why you were called. You were called with nothing desirable in yourselves, but so that you would be a blank tapestry for God to just create this beautiful artwork to his glory. And so your calling is in spite of your depravity. And your calling comes first, and then your walking comes after that. Therefore, you should walk worthy of your calling. Verse 2 tells us exactly how to do that, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. 
Humility means that we put others first before ourselves, that Christians are marked by selflessness. Tim Keller puts it this way, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Christian, you just flat out should in all areas of your life put others in front of yourself. That's what humility is. Paul says to also do this in gentleness, conveys the opposite demeanor of being quarrelsome or easily offended by things, which far too often, sadly and ironically, is what characterizes a lot of churches, that we want to cancel everyone who doesn't do exactly what we want or we're offended and we want to fight and begrudge everything. But no, the Bible calls us to gentleness and patience. Man, we're a culture that's lost patience. You know how I know this? Because the Jetsons predicted how we would live. Have you seen an air fryer before? It's like a magic voodoo cooking machine. You put frozen things in it, you turn it on, the wind of God comes from nowhere, you pull it out and you have cheese sticks. It's amazing, it's like the Jetsons. And, and it's, it's this quickness, you know, this microwave idea that, that, that we've become accustomed to. Even, even in this building, we got fiber optic cable installed this week. I have no idea what that means, except Baker tells me it's fast interwebs. So it speeds up every, I thought fiber did something else, but, but nevertheless, we have in our culture become accustomed to a high speed world. And if I could use those analogies, sanctification and discipleship and the mission of the church would be more like a crock pot and more like AOL internet that's dial up and you have to put a CD-ROM in to get it, right? It's slow. And we don't typically like that, but it's what God's called us to because he calls us to spend a lot of time together. That's how it works. Because guess what? Our future involves spending a lot of time together in heaven. And then he finishes by saying that I love, I absolutely love this phrase. I'm so thankful it's in the Bible. You know, I'm thankful for the whole Bible, but there are just some things I just look at. I'm like, God, thank you so much for putting this in there, especially as a pastor, bearing with one another in love. This is such a grace that God put this in the Bible for us, that we are to bear with one another in love. I looked up the Greek. I can't remember how to say the word because I'm not that smart. But you know what it means? It just means put up with dumb people. That's, basic. That's the redneck translation of what this means. Put up with dumb people in love. Bear with them. You know, I'm thankful for a wife that I don't feel like I have to bear with her. I don't have to put up with her. She's, she's a joy. And we, we, sometimes we, we're in good marital relationships, and we project that on the bride of Christ. And we think the bride of Christ ought to be this real romantic thing. Again, back to the Hallmark soapbox, right? And, and when it doesn't just add up to all the warm fuzzies that we had hoped for, when the church doesn't do exactly what we like, then we want to move on to different things. Let me tell you, this phrase, bear with one another in love, is one of the greatest gifts to us as a church because it gives all of us permission to screw up, repent, and continue in a good relationship with one another. Let me prove to you that that's good. Remember what Paul's using as his main text. His main argument is coming from Psalm 68. And he's quoting song lyrics. They would have sung this song in their churches. They would know it, right? And, and, and they would naturally have the lyrics in their head as he quoted it. Like if I, if I said, sweet Caroline, y'all would think, 
Bum, bum, bum. I said think, but some of y'all just, white people love it. Like, we gotta shout it out. All together now, right? And so like, so in the same way, the songs that they commonly sang, they would, they would know the lyrics to. And I found great grace in the very next lyric of the song in Psalm 68, verse 19. It says, blessed be the Lord who daily, what? Bears us. Isn't that good news? Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. The beauty of what God does for us, what he calls us to, is no less than what he does for us. You see, we put up with others because God has put up with us. We bear with others in love because Jesus bore our sins in love. It's good news for us, and it is a, should be a joy for us to forgive, to extend grace, because God does that for us. Psalm 68, 19 says that he does it daily, that he daily bears us up. Praise be to God. And verse 3, the verse I'll finish with is, first word is eager. We're eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. You know, eagerness is a very special emotion because you can do things begrudgingly and completely empty the worth out of it, right? You can go through the motions of certain things and, and, it, and it become, even though you might actually do what's asked to be done, it can be completely meaningless if you don't do it with the right heart and attitude. And eagerness is a beautiful emotion that expresses the way in which we do things. And so not only are we to be patient, not only are we to be gentle, not only are we to bear with one another, but we're to do these things eagerly. That means as saints of God, when we get to Saturday night, there ought to be an eagerness in us to see our brothers and sisters at church. There ought to be an eagerness when we go a while without community to get back to that. One practical example that we have set out on tables for you today is an eagerness to return to the Lord's Supper. In communion, our, our church does communion almost every Sunday. And during the season of Christmas and Advent, we, we took a time period away from that because Advent is meant to build up this longing, this, this anticipation is what the word means. Just as the world anticipated the coming of Jesus, we anticipate his return. And part of the anticipation this year, we wanted to be an anticipation built up for communion. And I absolutely love that after a month of not taking communion, my kids began to ask, when are we going to take communion again? One of my kids even said, it's super gross, but I miss communion. Listen, it's supposed to be bitter on purpose because Jesus endured a bitter death to pay for our sins. And as we eagerly return to communion today, I want you to just prepare your hearts by repenting of sin that you have. And you're welcome to these tables. We have two in the front and one in the back. If, this, if you're not a Christian or if you've never done this, you don't have, there's, you know, there's no obligation on you. You don't have to partake in this part of the service. But what this represents is you repenting of sin and being reminded of what Jesus did to save you. And it was die a gruesome death on a cross, be put into the lower regions of the earth, into a grave, and then to ascend on high in his resurrection to take you a captive of sin and set you free as a beautiful spoil of his victory. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.